Good to be together this morning. Good to see all of you here. Thank you for making it this morning. I know, you know, there are times when we get up sometimes on a Sunday morning and think, boy, it'd be nice to be able to tuck back in. But you know what? It is, it is such a blessing to be here. And so I thank you for coming to worship this morning with us. Two weeks ago, we finished Matthew chapter 4. And as we did this, we were sort of in observation mode. If you remember this from two weeks ago, as chapter 4 ends of Matthew, we saw Jesus fulfill prophecy in the areas that he went, the geographical emphasis that he has there. We see him call his first disciples and demonstrate this divine authority that he has as the Son of God. And we also see him start his ministry as he, uh, here I quote from Matthew 4, went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. And I say we were in observation mode because we kind of observed what was going on here with Jesus from a distance. We saw him teaching and preaching, but we didn't actually hear what he was saying, right? This is why we say we're observing what's going on. Well, as we move into the next section now of Matthew, which is called the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to move from observation to participation. We're not just going to see what Jesus is doing. We're going to experience that teaching. We're going to place ourselves right alongside the disciples and hear what he is saying. So this next section of Matthew's Gospels, chapters 5 through 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount. You probably have heard that phrase before. You know what I'm talking about. And it's probably... I think it's probably the best-known discourse from all the Gospels. Many people have heard of or are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, these sections that we're going to get in here. There are, there are hundreds of books and devotionals and resources that have been themed around this section of Matthew's Gospel, and with good reason. It is, like has been mentioned already, one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Now, along with all these resources and these books and devotionals, there also comes several different interpretations as people through the centuries have read the Sermon on the Mount and come to different conclusions about what Jesus is saying. And so one of the things that I want to do this morning is to give us an overview of this whole section of Matthew. Chapters 5 through 7. The reason that I'm going to do that hopefully will become apparent as we get into it, but I want to try to help kind of keep us from wandering into some of the interpretation errors that have happened before. And I'll explain some of that as we move here. But as we read any of the books of the Bible, we need to understand that there should be different, uh, I'm going to call them layers, different layers to our understanding. So let me explain what I mean. So we're looking at Matthew's gospel, right? And we started by placing Matthew in the context of the Bible. Why does it show up right here at the beginning of the New Testament? In the very first week we looked at Matthew, we saw all the way from Genesis through redemptive history, the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, we placed Matthew historically where it is in the Bible. We say, okay, here's why it's here. And then there's another layer of understanding. As we get down past that, we need to say, okay, what is Matthew's intention? 
Why does he say things this way? Why does Mark include this, but Matthew doesn't include this? So we got to get down past the overview and get into the content of the book. And then once we get into the book, we have to say, okay, what's the significance of each of these sections? What's the big deal of the Sermon on the Mount? Why would we slow down here and figure out what's going on? Because as we read the Word of God, we should be trying to understand all of those different interpretive categories. Now, I'm not trying to make Bible reading more complicated. Some of us already struggle with just opening the word, understanding what it's saying. But I want you to kind of have a peek behind the scenes of why I am approaching the text the way I am. Because I don't want us to just get through Matthew. I'm not in a hurry. (laughs) And I want to really exhaust what is here for us as a church. And I want to help us understand, okay, how do we not just read the book and get a couple of application points, but how do we really come to understand what it's saying? So I'm telling you this because of what we're doing this morning. We're not actually going to get into Matthew chapter 5. Rather, we're going to give some overview, some observations, and I want to offer some interpretive principles. And this is why it may take us a while to get through the book. Because I'm not after just finishing books of the Bible. I'm after helping us to understand what the Word of God says. And as I learn and as we learn together, we can encourage one another, we can challenge one another. So to that end, this morning will be introductory. We could jump in, that wouldn't be wrong, but this morning we are going to overview the Sermon on the Mount. So, before we get into it, I think it's appropriate, as we do every Sunday, that we pause and ask the Lord to help us in our understanding. So would you pray with me, and we'll begin. Father in heaven, it does seem like kind of the start of something new this morning as we get into a new section of your word. I'm thankful, Lord, for these past couple months that we've been able to open the scriptures together and and see what you have recorded for us in the book of Matthew. As Josh said, Lord, we're coming into the season of Advent and Christmas where our attention may be focused more on the coming of Christ and I pray, Lord, that this would never be taken for granted. Sometimes we just say, oh yeah, it's Christmas time. We don't really pause to consider what that means for us. That your son, divine God of God, came, laid aside what was rightfully his, took on flesh and suffered and experienced everything we experienced so that he can be a faithful high priest to us. Oh. So we don't want to lose the wonder at what this season means. And Father, I just ask for your help again as we Look to your word this morning as we see some hopefully helpful instruction and interpretive helps as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. My desire here is that you would receive the glory for all of the work that you have done. And as we study your word together, give us grace. Give grace in the preaching. Give grace in the hearing. And I pray that in all these things, Christ would be praised. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we consider the Sermon on the Mount, we come to this section of instruction and teaching. I think the first question that needs to be answered is, how do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount? And you say, well, 
It's in the Bible. We should do what we always do with the Bible and observe the principles and do what it says and seek to obey it. And that's simple and that's true. And we should do those things. But when I ask how we should interpret, I don't just mean what is our understanding. I mean, how are we to apply these things? Uh, how are we to try to filter through what Jesus is saying and make it actually helpful and relevant? And I think when we think about the sermon in its context, its author, its content, we have to think a little bit more carefully about what we're going to do with this section of Scripture. And we want to get our interpretation right, not so that we can stick our thumbs in our suspenders and say, we got the right view, but we want to get interpretation right so that we don't fall into some of the error that has happened previously when it comes to interpreting the Bible. I know it's dangerous to say things like, this is the way to interpret something. So what I offer you this morning is my best stab at how to interpret this. If you have different ideas, that's okay. I'm just trying to help us all get somewhat on the same page as we move forward here. So let me give you a few examples. You say, well, how could you take this text and, and turn it into anything other than what it is? Well, it's happened quite a bit. Let me give you a few examples from history. During the medieval times... The church wrongly embraced this idea that there was sort of two levels of Christian ethics, Christian morality. And the, the upper tier, the special, the really holy people would follow things like the Sermon on the Mount. While there was then this separation for the less, the kind of common people, people that didn't have access to the Bible, those kinds of things. This way of thinking, this division of Christian ethics led to some of the hierarchy that exists still to this day in, for example, the Roman Catholic Church with Pope and bishops and cardinals and all the way down. There's like, well, this is reserved for the top tier. Well, that's not right. This is for all of us, as we're going to see. Some groups, like the Anabaptists, would look at certain texts in the Sermon of the Mount like, uh, turn the other cheek if someone strikes you, or love your enemy. And they would take that teaching and they would translate it into the civil realm and they would say, well, we must be pacifists. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. We should not have military. We should not have police. Do you think that's an accurate and faithful rendering of the Sermon on the Mount? I don't. But this kind of stuff happens all the time. Liberal theologians Take the Sermon on the Mount and they flip it upside down so that it becomes a list of things that if you can just obey rightly, you'll be made right with God. It's all about works. This is kind of a classic theme in the history of the church that mankind, left to himself, wants to naturally work for it rather than accepting salvation as a gift of God's grace. Others have falsely believed that these instructions in the Sermon on the Mount was only for the Jewish people. This is just immediate context, right for Jesus' audience. And if they would have just been able to get it, if they could have just obeyed what he's telling them to do, they could have ushered in the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. But, oh, rats, they couldn't obey. Well, plan B, I guess Jesus will have to go to the cross now and the church age will have to suffice until they can get it together. That's not right. I mean, it is so clear from Scripture, Jesus' death on the cross is not God's plan B. It is the only plan of redemption for his people from before the beginning of the world. So for someone to take this and say, well, yeah, it was just the immediate context, and if they could have gotten it, that'd be great, but they didn't, so here's the other option. That's false, and we don't want to go down that road of interpretation. Christ 
and his teaching and his life and his death and his resurrection and the establishment of the church and God making one new man in place of the two with Christ as head over all is the singular plan. So this is what I say. There are so many different things that if you just get a little bit off, you end up in some really dangerous territory interpretively. So what I want to do today is offer a suggestion to you as we consider the Sermon on the Mount on how we should interpret this and really every part of the commands of the Bible. And I hope that this will be helpful for you. So I'm going to use a little illustration here. So I want you to imagine that thinking rightly about the Sermon on the Mount, the right interpretation is walking down the path. And on either side of this road or path, there's two ditches. You've heard this example before, right? We don't want to fall into this ditch. You don't want to fall into that ditch. If it's more helpful, think about this aisle right here. You don't want to sit in that pew, and you don't want to sit in that pew. Whatever your illustration is in your head, that's my analogy, okay? So walking down the path is right interpretation. On either side, there's two main errors that I want us to stay away from. So I'm going to tell you first what these ditches are, and then I will tell you what walking on the path is. So two errors to avoid. First one, on one side of the ditch, I'm going to call this error new law. N-E-W, new law. Now the ditch of new law looks at the Sermon of the Mount only as a continuation of the Ten Commandments, of the Mosaic Law. Okay? It looks at it as something that if we can just do what Israel didn't do, if we can just obey, then we'll be good. It's just kind of a one-to-one translation over. And if we think about the Moses typology that we've seen so far here in Matthew, it fits, right? The wilderness wandering with Jesus' temptation, we trace that back to Moses. We see the flight to and from Egypt, we see a lot of similarity. Jesus goes up on a mountain now and delivers to the people this way that they should live, these commandments for them. Do we see that anywhere else in the scriptures? Yes, of course, we see it back with Moses, right? This is reminiscent of Moses on Mount Sinai as he receives the Ten Commandments and instructs the people. But if we take this new law interpretation only, we're going to turn the Sermon on the Mount into a list of things we must do to please God. If we can just obey the law like the people should have done before, then everything will be good. Well, this view has at least two major problems in my mind. First, the law, the Mosaic law as a whole was never meant to be redemptive in nature. Its purpose was not to save the people of God through their perfect obedience to the law. Rather, it was instruction. It was rules for living that were intended to mark the people of God as being separate from all the nations around as they moved into the promised land and to reveal the people's inability to do what it took to please God. So God brings this standard called law and the people can't meet it because they're sinful. So it wasn't intended originally to be a redemptive thing. It was intended to mark out God's people, to give characteristics for their living and to point forward. It's probably the biggest thing, to point forward to a greater sacrifice, a greater covenant coming through the promised Messiah. So seeing the Sermon on the Mount as new law only betrays a misunderstanding of the old law. That's not what it was for. 
Second problem comes in typology. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? So typology is seeing connection between events or characters or people. So we would say Jesus is a type of Moses, type of Adam, type of, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a problem here with this view of the Sermon on the Mount. And it comes in the issue of typology. There's obviously a connection to Moses here, Right? And Matthew wants us to see that, and that is right and good. I'm not denying that at all. But it is not a one-to-one connection. It is not as if Moses gave a law and the people should have obeyed it, and now Jesus gives a law and the people should obey it. There has to be a greaterness in the typology. So it's not just that we take the old law and say, okay, Jesus is just recapitulating what Moses said. It's just the same thing. It's law for law, tit for tat, same thing. That is not what's going on here because there is a greaterness in Jesus that wasn't in Moses. So Jesus comes and yes, he gives the law to the people, but his reach, his extent goes far beyond action and it gets into the heart. We are going to get into this and see that it is not the external things that condemn a person, it is the heart It is the motivation, it is the attitude, it is the intentions. So Jesus takes the law and he expands it into places that Moses never took it. So the greaterness, I think, of Jesus here is seen in the fact that he not only retells the law, but he expands it and reaches into the heart. We are dealing with a greater lawgiver, a greater law that's going to require a greater strength to obey. Tracking with me here? So we can't just say, oh, it's just one-to-one. It's not. The requirement is bigger. It's greater. It is, in a sense, going to be harder to keep. So I'm saying that if we just look at the Sermon on the Mount as a kind of new law only, that we need to obey to be right with God, we're going to get off into error on that side. So I want us to be careful that we don't just turn this into, well, it's just something we have to do, and, and then we'll be good. That's one ditch. Now, the other side of the road... There's another error, and I call this ditch no law, N-O, no law. In this view, the Sermon on the Mount kind of loses its teeth. It has no practical import. It has no effect on the way you're doing it. And the thought process here is that, okay, we keep reading in Matthew 5, and Jesus is going to tell us, hey, don't think I came to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. And the version of this where we say, oh, well, then I'm kind of off the hook for obeying. Because if Jesus came and he perfectly fulfilled all the law for me or on my behalf, then cool. I can just kind of live however I want. These things turn into some kind of metaphor or illustration where, yeah, boy, it'd be really nice if that was hypothetically the case, if I could be meek or humble in spirit or whatever. No, we don't want to fall into the ditch of saying there is no import here for us. I hope... Hope you see the error in this, right? The danger in the ditch of no law is that it separates our conduct from our confession and can lead to careless living, sinful living. But Christ fulfilled the law for me, so I can do whatever I want. That's irresponsible interpretation. That is not a right way to view this. This is the same exact error that Paul was dealing with as he writes to the churches in Rome. You remember this, he is so overwhelmed with the grace of God and the forgiveness that comes freely through Christ that somebody in Rome says, 
hey, I got an idea. If Jesus did everything necessary for us, let's live however we want and let grace cover the sin. Paul says, may it never be in Romans chapter six. So if we kind of react from the side that says we're gonna turn the law into a new law, we just got to obey, we react against that and say, well, there's no law, there's nothing for us to obey, we fall into a life of license and a life that says, well, we can just do whatever we want. So what are we to do? If this is not supposed to be interpreted as just a new Mosaic law, and if it also is something that we are to obey in some way, then what do we do? We kind of feel like right now, well, what, what's the option then? So instead of viewing it as a new law only or no law on this side, I'm saying we should view the Sermon on the Mount as Christ's law. The path that we are walking is the path of Christ's law. You will notice in both of those ditches, there's a lot of truth, right? There is connection to Moses. This is a retelling of what God expects from his people. And Jesus definitely fulfills all of this law in his life and his living. There's truth in this, right? You're going to notice this. But rather than saying it's simply new or that there's no law, when we affirm that it is Christ's law, we affirm that it is his not only because he gave it to us, but because by his spirit, he enables us to obey it. And there's the key. I think this is what transforms the Sermon on the Mount from just something we have to do or something we can ignore to something that we actually can do in the power of God. This is where the typology thing comes back into play. You see, Moses gives the law to the people, but he has no power to enable them to obey, right? So just saying that these are on equal ground from Moses to Jesus doesn't work because the promise of the new covenant, the book of Jeremiah, God says, I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I am going to, and here's the word he uses, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. So do you see the betterness of Christ's law? That he comes in, yes, there is obedience here. There is requirement. There are things that we ought to do in obedience to this law. But we are not on the hook for obedience ourselves. Christ, through his spirit, gives us the ability to obey. So we can transform our understanding of this law from being something that we have to earn or being something that we ignore to being something that Christ himself gives us the power to obey. This is the blessing of the new covenant and the sending of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Paul summarizes this idea so clearly. I want you to turn to Romans chapter eight. You've heard me talk about this chapter many times. It is the greatest chapter in the Bible and I will fight you in the parking lot after if you disagree with me. The reason that I say this is the greatest chapter in the Bible is because of what we're about to read. There is so much clarity. There is so much truth. There is so much theology in this chapter. But specifically related to what I'm telling you right now, this is where I'm getting all of this that I've just said is coming from the first four verses of Romans chapter eight. So you got it? You got Romans chapter eight. Let's look at verses one to four. And I want you to listen. I want you to listen for the connections between the law of Christ our responsibility to that and how this whole thing gets fulfilled. Let's read it together. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now if we stop there, we have the one ditch. No law. Oh, cool. The law's done. It's all been fulfilled. It's done. It's over. No, nope, Paul keeps going. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in, and here we might expect him to say, Jesus, but he doesn't. What does he say? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see how Paul keeps us from both of those errors in that text? God in Christ satisfied the demands of the law, verse 3. That keeps us from seeing the law as something we simply have to do and accomplish and climb the ladder, right? And yet we are still called to obey, which Paul puts in terms of walking according to the Spirit. So do you see that? Yes, the requirement has been met, praise God. And yes, we have walking to do. But we do not do it as a way to earn our standing with God. We do not do it to become the people of God. We do it because we are the people of God. And he empowers us through his spirit to walk in obedience to what he has commanded us to do. These are not impossible commands that we're gonna see. Do you know that? Sometimes we look at the Bible and we think, whew, I could never do that. And you're right, you can't. But Christ in you can motivate that. Isn't that amazing? So I don't want us to see this as just some kind of hypothetical metaphor. Oh, the Sermon on the Mount, boy, that's an idealistic way to live. No, that's the way we should be living. And because the Spirit of Christ is in us, we can actually have hope to get some traction in this area. So I commend this way of thinking to you as we come into this Sermon on the Mount, this section of Matthew, and really all the commands and the imperatives in the New Testament as, as we see that God gives us requirements. He gives us things to do, but we don't do it on our own strength. We're able to walk in obedience because it is the Spirit of Christ in us, which is why I'm calling this Christ's law and how he transforms it. So let me just give a few more observations, kind of introductory remarks as we get into the Sermon on the Mount. The first section that we come into, and we're going to start this next Sunday, in chapter 5 is called the Beatitudes. And these are the blessed are statements from verse 3 to verse 11 of chapter 5. Now these are general principles for all Christians to obey. As we move on into chapter 5, after we get through the Beatitudes, we're going to see Jesus deal with much more specific, narrowed-in issues. Things like money, and prayer, and anger, and forgiveness, and divorce, and marriage, and all these kinds of things. But for now, this first section, we're going to have general principles, and then it moves to more specific instruction. So let me just share a few observations about the Beatitudes as we keep moving. The Beatitudes contain things that are true of all Christians at all times. 
The Beatitudes contain characteristics that should be true of all Christians at all times, regardless of, and here you can fill in the blank, location, status, employment, family, race, anything. These are characteristics that should mark every child of God. This is not the characteristic of exceptional Christians, if there were such a thing, which they're not. But rather, the Beatitudes describe every Christian. There's a dangerous trend in some churches, and that is to create a separation between those who appear to be really spiritual, really have it together, and everybody else. This comes about in a number of ways. Sometimes it's, well, if you are on staff at the church, or if your life is vocationally in ministry, you must be holier. Ooh, you're a pastor, huh? Boy, I better not swear around you. I better not do anything like that. We create these divides between, well, you must be really holy because you do this with your life, or you must not be because you don't do that with your life. That's a mistake. That is unbiblical. I want to put that to bed right now. This is not teaching us that for some people, boy, there's a, you better live like this, but for everyone else, this is fine. The Beatitudes are giving us characteristics, attitudes, ways of living that should be true for all Christians at all times. I mentioned at the beginning that there have been churches in history who have used the Sermon on the Mount to support this kind of unnecessary and unhelpful division within the church. It's foolish and it's unscriptural. There is no such distinction in the Bible when it comes to the ethics and the conduct of every Christian. There is no higher Christianity for some of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this passage, says this, there are distinctions in offices in the Bible. So here he has in mind apostles, prophets, deacons, pastors, evangelists, and so on. But these beatitudes are not a description of offices. They are a description of Christian character. And from the standpoint of character and of what we are meant to be, there is no difference between one Christian and another. Isn't that good? Isn't that encouraging? That there's not some kind of higher Christianity that's unattainable for any one of us, that these commands that we're going to get into, these instructions for living, are for all of us. So I want us to be rid of the idea that there are instructions in the Bible that are just for the mature, just for those who are really spiritual or really special or they have an extra dose of the Spirit or whatever it is. As we saw earlier, with the Spirit of Christ in us, we can obey these things. Your life can look like this through the power of God in you. Second observation about the Beatitudes is that none of the things that we're going to see in the first part of chapter 5 is what we might call a natural tendency for someone. None of the Beatitudes are things that we're just kind of naturally gifted at or gifted with. Nobody is born meek. Nobody is born poor in spirit. These are not things that some of us just kind of have a leg up on because we are more naturally inclined towards them. And this is actually really good news to hear this. Again, Lloyd-Jones says, each one of these characteristics listed in the Beatitudes is entirely a disposition which is produced in us by grace alone through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. Each one of these characteristics listed in the Beatitudes is entirely a disposition. That's a big word for 
characteristic, the way you are. It's a disposition which is produced in us by grace alone through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And I think that this observation should really both humble us and give us great hope at the same time. It should humble us in the sense that we all start from the same place. There is not one of us in this room who could go to another and claim some kind of spiritual superiority because we're just naturally more inclined towards that. We're not. The Bible is so clear that every one of us is born sinners. We are born not neutral. We're not just waiting to see if we'll kind of tip the scale one way or another. We are all born dead in sin. And as such, none of us are naturally exhibiting these kind of characteristics. So if no one is born pure in heart, no one is born naturally seeking after God, which the Bible clearly affirms, then we can dismiss the idea that true or fervent Christianity is just easier for some people. It, do you ever watch someone and you, you almost, we almost start to think like that, like, oh, well, that's just easy for them. They're more inclined towards that. No, they're not. Nobody is naturally inclined to be like this. And I'm telling you, that's good news. Because it puts us all on the same level of needing the grace of God to empower us through his spirit that we can actually become like these things. So as we look at these, don't start to think in yourself, well, if I, just, if I was more naturally bent towards that, if I just had a little bit more experience, no. No, we all need the grace of God to make us like that. And the good news is that God gives grace for these things. One last observation here before we move to close. What I see when I read the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, is that there is an essential and necessary difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Between those who follow Christ and those who frankly want nothing to do with him. There's another dangerous tendency in the church, and that is for us to try to look as much as we can like the world around us. It's a really dangerous thing for us to try to say, man, I don't want to stick out. I don't want to be the only one who thinks this way. The Bible's opinion on this is really unpopular in my workplace. And before long, we can just kind of assimilate and start thinking as the world thinks, living as the world lives, eating as the world eats, entertaining ourselves as the world entertains themselves. This passage won't let that stand. The Sermon on the Mount is marking out the characteristics of every Christian to draw a distinction between the way we are called to live as Christians and the way that almost everybody else is living around us. Some people have called this section of Matthew the upside-down kingdom because as Jesus is teaching about the ethics and the standards of his kingdom that he is inaugurating, that he is bringing now to fruition we are meant to see a clear and sharp distinction between what he says and everything that's happening in the world around us. Now, I already said that none of these things are characteristics that we naturally incline to, but not only are they not naturally occurring, they're often very contrary to what is going on around us. And I think that's on purpose. I mean, who in their right mind would set out to conquer and do it through meekness? That's backwards to the world. 
That's upside down. You don't conquer through weakness. You conquer through might, aggression. Mm, get it. It's backwards. What Jesus is telling us is backwards to the world. Okay? This is exactly the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 5 through 7. These are not meant to be principles that will equip you to live incognito or unnoticed in the world. If you seek with your heart and the power of the Spirit to live these things out, there will be a marked difference between your conduct and the conduct of those around you. And that's the point. Jesus is telling us <clears throat> what our lives should look like. There should be a real and tangible difference because we have the Spirit in us. We have the power of God enabling our obedience. There should be a difference. Let me give you a few examples. There should be a difference in what we admire. You ever notice what kind of gets people going? What, what's attractive to people? What, what are they drawn to? What do people admire? Power, success, Fame. I mean, there's people on the social medias who are simply famous because they're famous. Like, they haven't done anything. They just record themselves talking and they get enough people to watch it. And before long, it's like, oh, that person has 12 followers or something. Like, who cares? What's, what's the big deal right there? Why is that attractive? Why do we create this separation? Because the world admires that. They admire success, power, publicity, not us. We admire meekness, gentleness, the fruits of the Spirit. There's a difference in what we pursue. What are some of the things that people pursue around you? Well, comfort, stability, success, money. Are those things bad in and of themselves? No, we all want to be that and it's okay. But is that the primary pursuit of the Christian life? Or are we instructed and said to seek the kingdom of God first? And all those other things God will take care of. There's a difference in how we think about ourselves. Right? The man of the world thinks very highly of himself. He puts no restraint, no limit on what he goes after or how he goes after it. You've heard the phrase, win at all costs. The ends justify the means. That whole way of thinking is prompted by the way that we interpret ourselves. So if the world looks at the self and says, two thumbs up, buddy, you can do it. Go after it. Doesn't matter who you run over. That is contrary to what Jesus is teaching us here. The Christian's understanding of the self, according to what we're going to see here, is that we are all in desperate need of grace and redemption and forgiveness and the enabling of the Holy Spirit because we cannot rely upon ourselves, but we must rely upon God. So there's just a very drastic difference between the way that the Christian life is mapped out in the Bible and the way that the majority of people live around us. And I'm not saying that this should produce some kind of superiority in us. I do not want any of us to leave here and look down on everyone else and say, well, I'm a Christian and you're not. This is motivating, right? We don't want people to end up satisfying their selfish pursuits for the rest of their life and perishing eternally in hell. We want them to know that God has mapped out a much better way of living 
that will bring ultimate and true satisfaction. So rather than seeing our way of conduct as being something that's higher than or superior to, it should give us a compassion and a drive to share this kind of living with those around us. So more and more and more people come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, has the ability to cure us from our desire to be as much like the world as we can be. And I know that's a temptation. I, I am not standing up here as one who is removed from that, or I, I don't struggle with that. That's not the case. We are all tempted to kind of assimilate into what is normal so that we don't make a scene. And I just pray that as we are going through these texts, that we would be weaned off of the world. There's just nothing satisfying out there. The only thing that's going to satisfy you is Christ and living according to the way that he calls us to live. And the good news is, as we've already seen, that he will give us the power through his spirit to walk in obedience to Christ's law. And that's the best news that you can hear this morning. Because that's what God's will is for you, and he has given us the ability to obey him. So, next Sunday, we start Matthew 5, 1 to 5, and I want you to read this through the week. Read the whole Sermon on the Mount, 5 to 7. It doesn't take long but especially these first few verses, and come next Sunday expecting God to speak through his word. So let's pray, and we'll come to the table. Father, thank you that we could spend this morning preparing our hearts to begin the Sermon on the Mount. And I am so eager, Lord, to unpack this together, to, to be able to spend time considering what you have taught us through your word I'm eager, Lord, to see the teaching, not because I want to just tell everybody else what they should do, but because I need this instruction. I need to be reminded that this folly of chasing the things around us and the blessing of pursuing a life of holiness before you. So God, we are now coming to the table as we do every week, and I am so thankful that you have provided salvation through Christ that you not only give eternal life through Jesus, but also the ability to obey your commands now. This is not just a future-looking salvation. There is effect for us right now. And so I praise you, God, that we can read the Sermon on the Mount, that we can stay away from all the error around us and just say, Christ, this is your law. Now give us the strength to obey, and he will do it. So God, prepare us for this journey. Speak to us through your word. And would you do it so that you are glorified and we are helped. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.